Hola y bienvenidos a Peruvians of USA, peruanos de Estados Unidos. Un podcast en español, inglés y spanglish donde compartimos las diversas historias del inmigrante peruano. Mi nombre es Natalie Sofía y soy una chica peruana que vive en los Estados Unidos por más de 20 años. Welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast in Spanish, English and Spanglish where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. My name is Natalie Sofia, a fellow Peruvian living in the U.S. for more than 20 years. So let's get started. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Welcome, Elena, to Peruvians of USA. I am thrilled to have you here today. I cannot wait to talk to you about your business, your Peruvian story, which I think is so unique. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, guys. My name is Elena. I am the owner <laughs> of Brooklyn Watering Designs, which is a jewelry line for those of us of Andean descent who are from Peru or South America and currently just surviving the pandemic one day at a time, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm glad to see you're healthy. Hopefully everybody or your loved ones are healthy as well. Yep. We're surviving. We're here. We're inside. <laughs> one day at a time. One day yeah. at a time. That's how we're gonna. That's how we're gonna make it. Uh, I'm just gonna say first, Elena. I love the name Elena, and I shouldn't say this in like you know a podcast. But if I ever have a daughter, that's her name. Like it, oh, I've spoken it into existence. She'll be my goddaughter. <laughs> She's my god baby already. <laughs> I love, love, love that name. And then also you mentioned Brooklyn Watermy Designs. You're not only the owner, you're the founder, owner, CEO. I'm just going to throw all of that humility, out <laughs> So I just have to say congratulations on the, I, you called it a soft launch, but it's, it seems like a strong launch the way it's been performing. Um, thank you. Thank you. And for the audience who's not familiar with uh, Brooklyn Warmy War uh, Designs, is jewelry, uh, like you mentioned, Indian designs. Yes, the designs have words of meaning to us. So I have Quechua earrings, which are from the Quechua people, and the language that is spoken in parts of Peru and Bolivia and Ecuador. And I have Aymara earrings, again, to honor the, the indigenous peoples there. I feel like a lot of us in this day and age are reconnecting with who we are. And, you know, most of my brand is really just for representation. And I really want people to feel represented wherever they go and in this life and living here in the diaspora, you know, there's not a lot of representation of us. So I really, really wanted to do something to make people feel seen, you know, that's beautiful. And I do think a lot of people are feeling seen. I have not yet seen like, um, you know, necklaces with Peruvian map on it. I love the earrings with the sun and then they have oh, the moon. Thank you. So two questions. Mm -hmm. What does Warmi mean? Warmi means woman in Quechua. So <laughs> I figured I'd combine two of the things that brought me up, which is I live in Brooklyn um, so I was adopted as a baby and we'll get to that, I guess, a little later, but I was adopted to Brooklyn, New York. I grew up here and, you know, I'm a Warmi. I am a Quechua Warmi. I am of Quechua descent. Um, and yeah, so I figured I combined the two names. So. How did your, how did Brooklyn Warmi get started? Did you create jewelry prior? How did, tell us the origin, like the origin. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> the origin. Uh -oh. Um, Brooklyn Watermi originally was a different name. I really wanted to bridge the connection between Peru and New York. And I grew up with big door knocker earrings, you know, that was the style, all gold, everything, nameplate chains. And I've always loved jewelry. I will show you my bathroom because that's where all my jewelry is. <laughs> I do make some, some pieces. My daughter makes bracelets and but most of the stuff that you see is not handmade, but it's given with love and it's my designs. They're like carefully selected and modified a bit to like fit the aesthetic that I think really represents us as Andean people. I think it's beautiful that you're also sharing this with your daughter and getting her involved with the jewelry design. Are there specific pieces that are more meaningful to you than others? Do you have favorites or do you love I all do of them? I have a favorite. <laughs> The Love Me Like the Sun necklace, the one that has a sun on it, is my favorite. It's the Chacana that I have on right now. Um, I'm, I've been debating. We'll get into this one in a little bit. But definitely also the Peru chain itself. Um, on the back, there's a message. So you can't see that like just when it's straight on. 
but on the back, there's a message that says, you deserve to feel seen. And I really wanted to include that because I think, you know, Peru was not somewhere that I grew up, like, where everybody knew where it was, like, when I was growing up. I would be like, oh, I'm from Peru, and people would be like, where is that? And if there was no representation, people had heard about Ecuador, people heard about Colombia, people knew about Bolivia, but then they were like, they would name all the different countries, and then I'd be like, okay. <laughs> Well, I'm from Peru, <laughs> so I really wanted people to feel seen with it. And I also relate to, to that story and that being not feeling seen. Yes, there was a Latin explosion at the late in the late 90s here in the US, but it was very PR-centric, Colombian-centric, because, you know, we had artists like J-Lo, Ricky Martin, we had Shakira, <laughs> which I applaud all of them and all the work they've done, but mm -hmm. you still want like, ah, oh, but I still don't see myself. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it, it was very different. So I do not identify as Latinx, Latina, because I never felt represented in that light, in that aspect. I'm very indigenous-looking, I'm brown skin, I'm a, I'm plus, you can't tell from this angle, baby, but I'm plus size, okay? <laughs> And, the cars. You know, <laughs> all of them <laughs> but I I definitely did not feel represented um and I really wanted people to to you know see me and so I saw the JLo's I, I saw the Shakira's and I saw I don't know whoever else there is and I was just like wow these are very like beautiful women but they don't look like me yeah and being indigenous, you know, my parents are from the and the rural side of Peru, the, from the provinces, but I, I can only imagine seeing what people are considering these Latinas and like all Latinas not got to look like this. And then, mm -hmm. you know, reflecting on, on ourselves and being like, well, I don't look like that. Right. <laughs> so, so where are the women that look like me? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's a question that I think a lot of young girls have and struggle with. Um, so as I was researching for this interview and I like to, you know, understand my, mm -hmm. my guests, I did a little Instagram stalking <laughs> <laughs> and one of your posts, you said an introduction to you is your daughter. Yes. I saw yes. that post and that's my first post. <laughs> yes, girl. I scroll yes. all the way back. Oh, yes. Come all the way through with the stock. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your daughter. Oh, uh, Okay. <laughs> This might be a long interview then. <laughs> My baby is 10 years old. She is Afro-Indigenous. Her dad is from the Caribbean islands. She's beautiful. Like, oh, she's so beautiful. She's such a kind human being. And she's just so loving. I had her at a young age. I was 19. And everything happened so fast. But she made me appreciate life so much more. Okay, I'm not going to try and cry on here. <laughs> But um, she's just, she's a really good kid. And um, I hope she continues being a, a beautiful human being that she is. And I, I love her. Oh, well, I can see that she has Oh my God. <laughs> We're not going to do this. Um, so you mentioned she's Afro-Indigenous. How do you help your daughter with her own identity? Because that was something you struggle with. And that's something I think about. Like, oh my gosh, if I have kids, like, how am I going to help them through this? I have community, honestly. That's really what it comes down to. Um, I guess in terms of understanding me and my side of the family, um, which she doesn't have a lot of exposure to because since I'm adopted, my family isn't here. And I didn't grow up with a Peruvian community or an indigenous community. I found that later on in life. So I brought her back to Peru with me in 2019. Um, and I'm glad we went 2019 because <laughs> we wouldn't have been able to like postpone it any further. Um, but I think it really opened her eyes. Sometimes in the moment, you don't get to really understand things. It takes you a little while. And over time, she's become just so much more aware of the things that go on in the world. And she's come with me already to so many different protests, so many different sit-ins and so many different places that I think it's made her more understanding of the world. And then to have to, and then going to back to Peru and meeting my birth mother, like that was her first time meeting her. And like, it was beautiful. Um, I think it really made her want to understand herself more. Um, and in terms of her Caribbean side, um, on her dad's side, he, his family's here. So she has that culture here. And then it's, it's such a broad spectrum, but I can only do what I can do. And I can only give her the tools and resources and the people here that, that look like her. 
And that's another reason why I started Brooklyn Watermi is because I wanted representation. I mean, how could I just represent one knowing that there are Afro-Indigenous people? You know, I can't just say, oh, I mean, it becomes this whole, it's a whole, <laughs> I'm going to go, I can feel myself like about to start listing everything. And I'm like, let me just <laughs> keep it there. Yeah. <laughs> I think also like one of the the ways we as daughters learn to love ourselves and learn to accept ourselves is by seeing our mothers do that. Everything you're doing and everything you have gone through, which we'll discuss, it's only making her that much better and that much stronger as, as a young as a, as a young girl. So yeah. in the future, young yes. woman. It's an ongoing journey. So, you know, be kind to yourself and like really what we say to ourselves matters. So mm -hmm. if I'm having a bad day or I don't like the way something looks on me, I really try to make that conscious effort to not say it out loud because I don't want her to get into that habit. We learn these things so young and beauty standards here in the United States is not what every beauty standard is. Does that make sense? There's like this entire vision of what beauty is and we all don't fit that. So that makes us feel less than. So I want her to really understand that no matter what the standard is here, the standard, <laughs> she's beautiful. And I think we're all beautiful. Yes. Um, all right. So let's talk about your story. You had mentioned <laughs> a couple of times you are adopted. So mm -hmm. take us to the beginning, 1990. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1990. Um, so I was adopted um, in 1990. <laughs> Under the Fujimori regime. And at that time, Sendero Luminoso was making its way around. From the information that I've gathered and from the stories that I'm, I'm still limited to, because it's very traumatic for my birth mother to talk about it. It's, I don't know my birth father to ask him anything. My uncles won't talk about it. So I know that it was such a tra traumatic time for her. So I'm only going to speak on what, on what I know. I have three older brothers that came before me. One was actually adopted right before me and she could not survive with me. I think she would have starved to death had she kept me. And even my older two brothers that she didn't put up for adoption were staying with friends and family. I think she did what she needed to do. She fled from Puno, which is where she's originally from, to Lima to look for work and to escape the household she was living in. She was a young parent. She only knew so much. And I think she did what she had to do. A lot of times I know these adoption stories are, we were taken, we were, a lot of us were stolen, you know? Um, but that wasn't the case for me. My birth mother made a conscious decision to give me up and as well as my other brother who was given up for adoption. We don't live together and I've never met him in person, <laughs> but, um, I, I would like to, but, um, but it's just, I think that. It's a hard story to share. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard story to share. I mean, for any mother and particularly during those times where it wasn't only the threat of Sendero Luminoso, but also the military who, yeah. unfortunately, the story that I hear is that you didn't know which side people were on and the communities that ended up paying the price for the, in, the indigenous communities uh, in the rural side of Peru. And I recently read um, a book by an approving author, which I'll share in a post, uh, and I interview her. And she touches on some of those stories and it's just heartbreaking. Uh, and there's some films as well, like that were popular a few years ago. I think it's like La, La Teta Asustada, I think was one of them that mm -hmm. kind of touched on those things. Um, what about from your adopted family? What is what is their story and how did they come to Peru to adopt? My adopted parents are white, <laughs> white Jews, but they're not super religious. They would consider themselves reformed. My mom couldn't get pregnant and she really wanted a baby. And I also want to make clear that my adoption was not for anything else but love. My, my mother is such a good woman, such a loving, caring person. And she just genuinely wanted a baby and she could have she said she had a dream about Peru and she loved Peruvian food um and I guess that goes into like a deeper side of fetish fetishizing adoption but she just genuinely loved Peru <laughs> and she had a dream about Peru and she was like I think our baby needs to be from Peru so my dad had already traveled down to Brazil years prior to my adoption and he fell in love with South America too they got me through a lawyer and that's an interesting story, <laughs> but um, they got me through a lawyer and I was adopted out of Lima. 
And did they choose the name Elena for you? So yeah, <laughs> my birth name is Soledad. So to honor that, to honor my my birth mother, I use that as my um, my second name, basically. Um, even though her name was Zoila, but everybody called her Soledad. <laughs> Um, my, so in the Jewish religion, you're named after the grandparent that is no more or like of the same sex. So my mom's mom's, her name was Ellen and you know, they had a baby. They didn't want to give the baby some sort of white name that like they said, and they chose Elena, but they say it like Elena, you know, which I'll do either one. <laughs> and that's how my name came to be. Um, so at what point did they talk to you about being adopted or did you notice hey I look different than my parents um so I always knew I was adopted my parents made sure to tell me my my mom was always like you're adopted and you know it's like you didn't grow from me but I love you like you grew in my heart and actually I have the she gave me this um poem that's up there but I'm not gonna go and get it but <laughs> but um she basically told me I'm adopted all the time like she was singing me a song just so I knew who I was and anytime there was a Peruvian event uh, my parents would take me anywhere in New York City or even in New Jersey. Um, if there was a Peruvian event going on, they would take me. So I was exposed to it. But um, I started to realize I looked different in elementary school when people were like, are those your real parents? Or the teachers looking around for my parents and they're like, where are your parents? And they're like standing right there. <laughs> But, you know, there's this little brown girl with uh, two white parents. <laughs> it became embarrassing. You know, I didn't I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be Peruvian, but I wanted to be white because my parents were white and I thought I would just fit in. But I loved being Peruvian because it just felt like something that nobody else had. You wanted to be the two identities that you loved. You loved your parents and you loved yeah. your culture because they exposed you to it. Mm -hmm. you know? That's very natural. As little girls, we also want to be like our moms, mm -hmm. right? And so do you recall at any time when you're like, I wish I would look like my mom or because I definitely well I act like my mom everybody tells me I act like my mom but I don't look like her <laughs> and so what is your memory as a child and, and thinking about your mom I don't think I wanted to look like her I wanted to look like me but just white <laughs> but I also want I also knew there was a woman out there who probably looked like me and I wanted to look like her and then you know the most exposure we got here was Disney and you know so when Pocahontas came out it was like <laughs> that's me that's my representation and all of a sudden I had Pocahontas everything and that really like started um, my first identity crisis <laughs> because she looked like me but she had parents that looked like her and she was without a mother so it really started like the ball rolling on like who am I I don't know who I really want to look like but I think there's a woman out there that looks just like me and I want to be like her. You mentioned that there were moments when you hated the way you looked growing up. And I definitely remember also not loving myself and hating the way I looked. Um, how did you buffer those feelings? How did you deal with that? Um, I'm still dealing with it. <laughs> it's, it's a never ending process. I think because I was told that I was, oh my God, I hate this word. I was told that I was ugly by a lot of different people that like it harbored somewhere deep inside. Until this day, it's like a struggle. Like I know these features are beautiful. I know that the lineage that I come from is beautiful, but it's still embedded so harshly in what the beauty standards are here. And I never lived, I never lived up, lived up to them, I guess I would say. I think that had I had that representation more than Pocahontas, I think I would, I think I would, or I saw more people that look like me, I think I would definitely feel differently. And this is to not say that New York City is not diverse, but I didn't get that diversity until I hit like middle school and the middle school came. And then there was a couple people who looked like me, but you know, growing up here, I was more exposed to Puerto Ricans, Dominicans. I'm talking about like the Latinx um, indigenous community. Like I was more exposed to Puerto Ricans and Dominicans as opposed to like other people from like Peru or Ecuador or Bolivia. So. Right. And there's also exposure as in like, I just ran into a person in the street and exposure as in the sense of like, you see them in magazines, people are thinking of them mm -hmm. as beautiful. They're in positions of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, New York City is very diverse and you can see people like you probably everywhere, but mm -hmm. are they 
the boss? Are they the CEO? Right, right. Right. And they're not. And so, so yeah, representations in and of itself is not enough. It's that's why the whole equity and inclusion comes, comes into terms. How did your parents help you through moments of identity crisis? So when I hit 15, 14, 15, I think I was in like my fifth identity crisis. (laughs) And I guess like by textbook standards, I was a troubled teen. And my mom said, you know what? I think a lot of this might stem from your adoption. So she made a couple phone calls, found my old paperwork, and she found the lawyer that, that did the adoption. And that was my way of starting to heal. And you met your biological mom at the age of 16, I think? Yes, uh, 15, 16 I went down there with, on a program, I went down there first on a program. I think my parents were very wary on how that whole situation would go. I feel like they thought, what if like her birth mother doesn't really care and doesn't really want to meet her? We have to at least come down and do like some good quote unquote for Peru. So we did like this program and we did volunteers, but we spent two weeks like just traveling Peru, just traveling all over. So the first conversation that my birth mother had with my parents was not good at all. I wasn't involved in it, but essentially it was just like, um, and I'm going to just kind of give the whole story. I wanted to like respect some of it, but I also feel like there's a lot of people that can relate. So my birth mother asked for money instead of asking to talk to me the first time. And as a mother now, um, I can only, and understanding what the economy was like at that point too, because that was 2006, like still understanding what the economic status of Peru was at that time and where she was living and everything that was happening. Um, she must've been so desperate for help and I can't blame her. I don't fault her at all. As a mother, you gotta provide. And yeah. we met her and it di- I didn't cry. <laughs> I thought I had like thought this so over and over, so much in my head over and over again on the plane ride there that I think I like I exhausted myself out <laughs> but it was like meeting a stranger you know so I had overthought out the situation but it was like meeting a stranger and I didn't cry I really wanted to cry I wanted it to be like one of those moments where like I see her and I run into her arms and she just holds me so tight but it wasn't like that I had my guard up I was laughing. I was like, hi, how are you? And then she started to speak, but it wasn't Spanish. It was Quechua. She was speaking to my my sister. And I was like, wow, what is this? I never heard of this. I met my brothers and my sister and everybody was crying. And I was like, damn, I'm not crying. I'm not crying. <laughs> it was It was seriously beautiful because you kind of get to meet them where they are and they get to meet me where I'm at. So they met me as like a teenager with my guard up. It wasn't perfect, but it was genuine. Did you see your features in her or on, I guess, yeah. <sighs> yeah, we are, um, we're splitting images. <laughs> and a lot of people would say that our personalities are so much alike. And that's what makes me happy. I'm like, wow, like I never grew up with this, with this woman, but our personalities are super similar. And I love that. I love that it's like, besides looking like somebody that I've taken some, some of the life from somebody, like the, some of the persona. Earlier, you mentioned that first conversation between your birth mother and your adoptive parents was perhaps not the best. <laughs> it didn't go so well. And, and that there was an ask for, for money. And yeah, I, I love the fact that you don't judge her for that. It's just communities in Peru and the economy and it is you survival is priority right and and I also been in situations where when I do when I mean this was several years ago when I do visit Peru some family member kind of like offhand would say oh don't you want to take one of my kids as if it was that simple for, for, for me to just like get them and bring them here and raise them right and at first it's shocking to me just kind of like you just want to give your kid away but at the same time putting it in the context of the situation and what they're going through and all the economy it I understand where that's coming from and it's and it's happened in my family where I'm about uh, to oh I'm sorry I don't want to make it no 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 I think I think it's beautiful (laughs) like I think well not not the situation but I think like it's okay 
to to understand like how hard it is and to understand motherhood how hard motherhood is how hard being a parent is and then to have to have to put your your child's needs first so i know so although like it's been a long process of healing i understand it now as an adult i can't say that maybe i would have done the same but i get it i get it now more so than i ever did in my entire life I think that when people need help, it is so easy to say, like, can you do this for me? Even though it means, like, I'm breaking my own heart to ask you to take care of of my child, you know? So, like, I, I, I've heard that, too, from my family. Like, you know, maybe you could take, um, you know, this person's kid. And I'm like, I'm not in a financial position to do that. <laughs> um, and I hate saying that because... I can only imagine the the desperation that they must have inside them or the, the the knowledge they know to say like, you know, their life would be better somewhere else. The opportunities are greater somewhere else. And no mother wants to separate themselves from their kid, right? Even so, even in my own story, we didn't all come together to this country. We kind of came one by one. Mm-hmm. And so there was a time where my mom had to let go of my brother. So he could, he was little, he was like under five so he could come here and then she had to come herself and leave me behind with my grandmother and that in itself is traumatic to a mom and a child and so it's 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 just degrees different but it's still the same it's still like the exact same feeling like I as you know as you're being as you being a young girl like I, I I empathize with you on so many levels because that feeling of being left you don't forget it and even though like I was too little to fully remember it I wholeheartedly believe in generational trauma part of me has always been traumatized by being taken from her. Maybe I wasn't ripped from her, but I was taken from her. Even though it was willingly, even though it was a conscious decision, I was taken from her. And I know she's had like a hard life. When I first met her, it was not pretty. The whole circumstance of where where her life was at the time. And um, I remember the last day that we were there, she came to the hotel that we were staying at to say goodbye and she had gotten robbed the night before so she had like glitz on her face and um I remember she had so much grease on her face just like Vaseline I guess to like to heal it to soothe it and that was traumatic so traumatic um to finally see her and then to know like this is what I'm leaving you I I'm leaving you know I'm not coming back right away um I can't help you I don't have I'm 16 I don't have a, a job right now you know to see her now how she's grown so much as a as a human as a person as as a mother she is just in such a better place now and she didn't scar from it and I can see but like when you see her I can see it on her face like when I was with her I would literally just go up to her and I would just like touch her face and because the world is not always kind but like we can be kind I don't know why I feel the need to share this context with our audience or people um this is again late 80s early 90s and and probably even now because we've seen all the violence against women that are happening not only obviously here in the U.S. too but in Peru there was a lot of conversation about that but my mom also went through quite a lot of discrimination and violence and maybe someday I'll share it (laughs) because it's still painful and it still chokes me up and even and she was from you know, Cajamarca, she's from like the rural area, but she was fair skin. So she didn't have that against her. And she was in Lima and she still experienced that. So to think of everything that a woman could go through and, you know, in the rural areas of Peru where there's a lot of machismo, there's, there could be a lot of violence um, and, and there's not secure jobs. It's just, it's just really hard. And, um, I guess I just want to share this with the audience and it's, oh my God, please. It's just, it's just, it's just, because like, I want them to understand that this, the context behind these stories, because I think it's important. And, um, you know, like your, your mom just had it so tough and, you know, in comparison, yes. And not that we need to compare who suffered the most, but like, I also know that my mom's story and, and the things she went through in Lima. And I, I guess I, this is my call for everybody just to be like compassionate and to have empathy for stories like this and for um, women who are in this position, right? Just wanted to take a break here to share that Peruvians of USA now has an online store. 
Help us spread the message that el mejor amigo de un peruano es otro peruano by visiting our online store. We also have feminine versions that said la mejor amiga de una peruana es otra peruana or gender neutral versions. This could be the perfect gift for a Peruvian in your life. Visit the link on the episode notes or link in bio. All right, back to the episode. But you mentioned like now she's in a much better place. Like how do you keep in touch with her? What is your relationship with her now? Okay. Breathing through it, boo. Breathing through it. Okay. <laughs> um, she's she owns her own restaurant in Puno. Yeah, she she went back home and wait, what is the name? Everybody go when you oh go to God. Puno. <laughs> I don't even yeah. remember the name, girl. <laughs> it's all right. You can text it to me but, later yeah. and I'll add it. We're all going to descend. We're all going to But yeah, she has her own restaurant and she's doing so much better. Like I look at her face and she's happier. I have a nephew down there. I have a niece down there. So she has them around when she goes to see them. And like everybody is trying you know, and now everybody's just, again, trying to survive during this pandemic, girl, but, you know, she's, she's a lot happier, and I think, I think it's because she went back home. I think leaving Puno was necessary for her to flee the life she was having, but understanding that Lima was not her play, her calling, um, and going back home, I think, has made her a lot happier, so. Um, really happy to hear that she yeah. is doing a lot better and she's owning a restaurant yeah, and she, she's the boss <laughs> she's the boss <laughs> um so you mentioned earlier like you know you becoming a mother too has helped you understand that yeah you put your kids needs first and you are willing to do everything for them so they have a better future and have opportunities so I understand that size and and you know, becoming a mother helped you understand your birth mother, but how has it helped you understand your adopted mother? Oh, um, to say that I have traits from her as well, even though we're not blood related, she, I mean, I, this is up to the people who know me, <laughs> but um, like my mom is so loving, she's so caring and she's really funny. <laughs> um, and she's, she's just an overall good person, you know, like, I think that's the nicest compliment to give me, but you're like an overall good person. <laughs> she she really is. I understand her in so many more senses now, though. What it was like to raise a daughter that doesn't look like you. My daughter, although we might she might be a little darker than me, she looks like her dad. Like she only has certain features of me. And then this goes into the culture aspect, you know, what can I what I cannot give her, you know, because I didn't grow up with Peru always in my house. I knew about it, I am, but it was not in my household. So trying to bring those traditions in. So I used to think that my mom was just trying to like appropriate Peru culture and, but now I get it because I want that stuff in my house. I want everything that has to do with where I'm from in my house. And she doesn't look like me, my daughter. I'm sure she looks like me a little bit. People will, people will, people will have their opinion, <laughs> but um, she looks like her dad. <laughs> So, you know, I did just nine months of caring for nothing, you know? <laughs> so funny. Um, I feel like I would be the type of mother that would say that. I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> I yes, did most yeah, of the work. <laughs> Come back out a sec. <laughs> Try again. Yeah. You also mentioned that you talked to other Peruvian adoptees. Tell us about that community because I have not been exposed to that community, but tell us, tell us about Peruvian adoptees. All right. So... <laughs> Those are my people. Like we, um, there's a group for a lot of us, and it's so interesting to see. Um, I feel like, um, and the communities that I already that I'm already a part of, like in the adoptee group, will like kind of back me up on this one. I feel like having white parents is like a curse in and of its, in, in its own, in its own way. Even though people be like, you're so blessed. Like you're so rich, you're so privileged. And it's like, all right, if you think that, like they're just families, you know, everybody got a story. Everybody has their own turmoil. Everybody has their own healing to do. Everybody has their own trauma. That goes for our white families too, you know? 
Um, but I connect with all of them because we're all so different. We all don't have the same beliefs, but all of us have this connection on understanding. Like when we talk about certain things, it's like, I don't have to be politically correct all the time. Whereas perhaps maybe somewhere else I would be like these Caucasian people, you know, but it's like, no, I'm saying white people. Okay. Cause that's, that's who our family is, but they're, they're amazing. They're an amazing group of people. Amazing. Uh, they're, they become friends. They're my family and I'm so thankful for them. Has the majority of that community been adopted like early 90s time or kind of just spreads around? So I think the, there's a couple that were like 70s adoptees, but a majority of us are from like 85 to like 94. And I haven't met any younger adoptees than, than after 94. Yeah, I don't think so. And are the majority of indigenous descent? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that says a lot in and of itself. I, I grew up with other adoptees, actually. I grew up with um, two adoptees, three adoptees in my life. One was like the brother of an adoptee. That was my friend. But I grew up with um, two. I grew up with one who was like Colombian. And I grew up with one who was Guatemalan. And the only difference, though, is like, this is where stories differentiate. So the girl I grew up with, um, who was Colombian, she was a white Colombian. She was, or white passing, I'm not sure which way people were saying it, but um, she was she was a white Colombian. And I guess she would identify as Latina. My friend who's Guatemalan, she is indigenous. She and I look so much, so very similar. People would think we were cousins or sisters and our experiences are completely different than a lighter skinned adoptee because she looked like her family. She looked like her parents or she could pass, you know, if she had lighter skin. Um, her parents were a little older and they could be like, oh, maybe she looks like her dad. Maybe she looks like somebody, but she could pass for her family. As for me and my friend, my other friend, it was like, oh yeah, y'all, <laughs> this, this ain't your blood over here, you know? So it was, it's different experiences for everybody. And it's not to knock anybody's experience, but it's definitely different experiences for all of us. Are there organizations in Peru or or here that are trying to sort of bring the Peruvian culture closer to the adoptees? There's programs that will allow you to go down to volunteer at like orphanages or churches or something. And okay, this might be a little controversial. While I'm thankful for these organizations because they allow us to go see, see where we're from, it's expensive. It is expensive. So it's not accessible. And I feel like the minute that people hear that you're adopted, they think you're rich, but it's nah. <laughs> but also like these, these programs aren't accessible. So say I just wanted to go on my own. I couldn't afford it. A lot of it is volunteering, you know, and while it's great to volunteer, especially with kids, like it's great. I loved it. I also want to point out that those kids, some of the kids who are in the orphanages are up for adoption. And I realized it, it's, also doing a disservice to that child because the first time I went to one of the orphan and that I don't think it was the one that I went to but I know there's another one um but I went to this orphanage to volunteer and there was this little kid and he was four years old he was my baby you know like he would he got attached to me I got attached to him and all of a sudden I'm leaving that's traumatic too volunteering can be very traumatic for children so then when I came back the next year, I went to the same orphanage and saw him again. And at this time I'm 17 and he's like, you came back for me. You came back for me. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't take him with me. So was I doing more damage by volunteering? Because in my mind, I was like helping out. And I do believe volunteering can de- is definitely great to help out, but also understanding it from like a child's aspect because adoption does come with being placed into certain orphanages or churches. So I, I had to really reevaluate because I was going to go again <laughs> um, in 2008, but I ended up just going to college instead. When I was an undergrad, I also went to Peru as part of a program. Um, and fortunately, the only way, the only reason I could afford it was because it was part of the school who covered it. Or let's be real, my tuition covered it. <laughs> right, right. Period. Okay, period. Okay. Um, and we did go to a children's home. It wasn't an orphanage, so you couldn't really adopt from there. But yeah, same similar story where a kid got attached to me and he was maybe one and a half. Mm. And I got attached to the kid. And literally the kid was on my hip the entire time yeah. I was there. And then, yeah, similar to your story when you're like, all right, I'm going to leave. I literally thought for a second, 
can I do this? Like, never mind. I am still in college, mm-hmm. <laughs> not graduated, don't have a real yeah. job, yeah. but it does cost your mind. And I was, and I, and I thought about it and then, you know, like reality hit, like I can't afford to adopt anybody right now. Um, and I follow, they have a newsletter. So I follow what they're doing. The kid is high school, like he's grown. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just crazy to think like, wow, I I literally thought about, you know, I thought of, yeah. And that in and of itself as well is another thing that's traumatic with adoption. So when I see kids who are in Peru and are in orphanages or up for adoption, I'm like, oh my God, the assumptions that come with adoption are you're rich, you're privileged, you have everything you want in life. And it's just like, that's not true for all of us. You know, Um, that's not true for me because I ain't rich. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I definitely have the privilege of having white parents. And it's not to say that they just give me money. I wish they would give me money, (laughs) but um, my, my parents are hard asses, you know, they work for it. If you want it, work for it. If you need anything, work for it. Like there's no handouts. There's no, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, but I also feel this pull to explain all the time that if it had to come between choosing my family and my community, I think I would just choose my community. Um, And that includes like my daughter, like before she ever watches this, she's like, you didn't choose me. Um, But I mean, in the sense of like responsibility, who I represent outside and who I am to the world is not the same thing that I represent to my family. You know, my family sees me as their daughter. They try to raise a daughter who I felt, I feel like they, they tried to raise me as if like the world was peaches and cream. Nobody told me about that you'd be stopped by the cops. You know, nobody told me that you'd be asked for papers. Nobody told me that uh, people would assume that English wasn't my first language. You know, nobody told me any of that. So that's stuff I had to learn on my own, but I have this responsibility to always say my community is super important to me and I would have to choose them because that's who I represent. At the end of the day, there's going to be, there's going to be another generation. My daughter, I represent her. So how could I not choose like my community as opposed to like my parents' views? And my parents are very liberal. So, but I feel like there's that also that distinct of like, when you're adopted, you become white. I don't know if that makes sense. It I feel like make, it's not a tangent. No, no, no. It makes sense. As you were speaking, I thought about what impacts your community impacts you directly and what contribution you can make benefits your community directly. You are one with your community. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens to your community could happen and may happen to you. You and, you explain it so well. And, <laughs> I'm like you're like this, this, this. <laughs> and and that's not the case with your parents because your parents don't look like you and they have not been impacted in the same way as Exactly. And as your community has. Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a very clear message. So as we talked about, like possibly adopting kids when we were not even ready to, <laughs> what, what um, message do you have for people who are thinking of adopting kids who don't look like them, who don't share the same culture? Do your research, you know, do not adopt somebody just because it is like this mentality of saving somebody, adopt somebody for love. Once you adopt a child, there's no, we're not toys. You can't just give us back. You can't just put us back on the shelf and say, you know, I'm gonna try another toy. You know, we're not, we're not figures. We're people, we're human beings that are traumatized. We come, we basically, we come to you traumatized. And if you adopt us, understand that who you're raising may not reflect you. Do your research, make sure that you are prepared it's really in it for the lifetime. You're in for a lifetime of questions, a lifetime of talking and a lifetime of healing, honestly. So just do your research. <laughs> I think what you just said about the kid you adopt may not reflect you is so key because so many of our parents will just say, the pareces a me or like, oh, you're just like your dad or you're just like your mom. And, and in some ways they say that when they're upset, but in some ways they also say out of pride, like if you're like smart and you're doing good in school, in school yeah. they're like, oh, look at you like me. Right. And so it's almost like inherit that parents want their kids to represent their best self. And mm-hmm. so when you come to adoption with that mindset of like, this kid may not reflect me, like that's, 
that's that's power i mean that's strong to like keep that in mind so and i think what you literally just said like yo i need to start like wording my things like you because sometimes i just be like (laughs) i think this 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 but um it's it's such a complex life to have to be adopted even trying to to have my my parents understand why i started brooklyn warmi um was like oh okay so who like you know what about other people and it's like this jewelry isn't just for everybody and i'm okay with saying that this jewelry isn't for just everybody this is for us who have not been represented those of us who have struggled to find beauty in ourselves and i'm sorry that i'm sorry to my family that feels like they're excluded but they live up to the western civilization standard of beauty and I never did. So this is for us who have gone underlooked, overlooked and underrepresented. Yeah. Parents who don't identify with what we're doing, in this case, perhaps feeling excluded. One way that they could be supportive is by just being curious about it or just leave us the F alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I love, I love having these conversations with my family. I love having talks about how to go about supporting these conversations even because it it opens up that floodgate of like oh you actually know a lot more than we thought you did or you're invested in in this a lot more than we thought you were and it's the same with adoption I can never get tired of talking about it because I know there's so many people out there who resonate who can relate to the our stories my parents and just like other families I guess in general are very hesitant because they feel like it pulls them further away from you so sometimes I'll be talking to my birth mother on the phone and I'll be like, Mamai. my mom will be like, what'd you say? And I'm like, yikes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> you know, it's that caught in between. Like, I love you both. It's just that I'm just getting to know somebody now. Like you're my mom forever, but this is also my mom forever. And you get kind of stuck in the middle. So these conversations, I think, about supporting businesses, I don't just stop at businesses. They come in supporting your children. Yeah. So I want to transition a bit uh, to questions from the audience. I guess I'll start because you have mentioned Brooklyn, Brooklyn Warmy Design. So everybody, make sure you check that out. <laughs> check out the jewelry. But what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Just go for it go for it. I sat on this idea for so long, like years on top of years. And I wish I could have started sooner, but you know what? Just got to go for it. That's really what it is. Advice is fall back on, ask community, ask around if you need resources or put your friends on. If your friend's a really good designer or like an illustrator, hey, can you draw this up for me? That's what we're here for. And that's the people that we're friends with. I couldn't have started without the help of friends you know, hey, can you do this? Or are you good at this? Where did you get like your cards done? You know, stuff like that. That really helps. So really trying to reach out. That's awesome. Go for it and lean on community for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you miss the most about Peru? (laughs) My mom. (laughs) I miss Puno. So you can't see, but like we talking about curves. These are some broad shoulders. Okay. These were meant to be in the mountains. Okay. Um, but I, I miss her tucking me in when I last saw her, we were able to stay with her. My daughter and I were able to stay with her and it was like, she treated me like a child, like a baby. She tucked me in and she would kiss me goodnight every night, tuck me and my daughter in. And in the morning she'd wake up, she'd go to her restaurant and she'd be like, come, come to the restaurant. Like I have breakfast for you. And just the things that I think she wasn't able to give me in my childhood. And that she feels like she's in a position now that she can. And I miss that. I miss laughing with her. Like I miss all of it. That's beautiful. Um, and I love that you you let her do that, right? You let her be a mom to you. Uh, yeah, I'm sure and I'm okay with being, you know, <laughs> in, you know, eat rubs. Give me all the food, tuck me right? all the time, me in all the time. So with Puno, kind of side note, I've been to Puno and the altitude girl, like telling you shoulders, okay? (laughs) These shoulders were meant for it. (laughs) I was like, I am moving so slow. And I would see elderly people passing me by climbing and walking, and I'm like moving so slow. So my daughter had a hard time, and I think it's because it was her first time. But me, I was like, oh, we're good. I'm good. (laughs) What's the day bringing? (laughs) But um, yeah, yeah, definitely like 
my body type was not meant for you. Closer to the sun. You closer to the sun, baby. <laughs> you are meant to be closer to the sun. Um, so another question that I have here is, oh, what other Peruvian brands or businesses do you love? Oh my God. You know what? I, okay. I'm just going to say like the ones that like come off my head um it's death by supai which is my it's my home girl's clothing brand okay um cholita new yorkina angie like she makes these dope velvet um headbands who else tashi she makes beautiful cards vivian black flowers grow has beautiful art and connie alegria peruanex has exhibit featuring peruvian beauty um who else there's, there, you know, what's funny is I made a list um, before I came on camera and I was like, make sure like, if you ask this question, you have these ready to go. And I couldn't find my list before I got on camera. <laughs> um, All right, you can share the list and I'll definitely add it. Yeah, to, for, to sure, the, for sure, for sure. To the episode description. So yes. <laughs> uh, we'll definitely add those links. And as we wrap up, what message do you have for Peruvians in Peru? And what message do you have for Peruvians here? For Peruvians in Peru, you're all beautiful. And I hope you see us who are adopted as part of you as well, you know. And for the Peruvians here, y'all still beautiful. We might not be in our home country, but that doesn't make us any less Peruvian. Elena, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today and with the audience. Uh, it's such a beautiful story. And I know we talked about your jewelry, about your adoption story, your daughter. Um, I see how much joy you're bringing into the world with all your jewelry pieces. I wish you all the success in the world and I hope to stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I look forward to connecting with you there. And remember, el mejor amigo de un peruano es otro peruano. Chao.